Women's Leadership Roles in Judaism. It's a good topic for a podcast. But what if the podcast involves two men and no women? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCopyhouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On July 16th, I released a podcast entitled Orthodox Women as Spiritual Leaders, Yes or No? A Conversation with Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander. To put it bluntly, I received some serious backlash as a result. Let me provide a little background. Recently, Israel's Attorney General, Dr. Avichai Mandelblit, announced that women should be allowed to take the same exams as men studying for the rabbinate. He was not suggesting that women should be ordained, but that they deserve the same opportunities that arise directly from taking and passing the rabbinate's test. These include state benefits, higher salaries, and more. The chief rabbinate of Israel responded by threatening to stop all examinations if it were forced to offer these tests to women. In the days after the chief rabbinate's threat, Or Torah Stone, led by Rabbi Brander, conferred on one of its graduates the title of Morat Hora'ah, She was the ninth woman to receive this title. Rabbi Brander was also involved in drafting the petition that was sent to the Attorney General in the first place that requested that the rabbinate allow women to take the same test as men or an equivalent exam. Many women were offended that two men would discuss women's leadership roles without having a woman present. I was told that this looked like two men deciding for women what they should be allowed to do and then deigning to tell them what we've decided. I was told there are plenty of women with whom I could have had this conversation as well. While I was not convinced that my critics were correct, I decided that it would be worthwhile to discuss it with Anne Gordon, Rachel Stomel, and Shoshana Keats-Jaskal, who are the directors of the Chochmat Nashim organization. I also produce their podcast, the Chochmat Nashim podcast, for my podcast network, jewishcoffeehouse.com. They are educated, informed, and honest. I look forward to hearing their opinions, which obviously might differ from each other's as well as from my own. I also wanted to ask them some of the same questions about women's leadership roles, which I addressed to Rabbi Brander three weeks ago. Before we begin, I'd like to make a few important points. First of all, podcasts are not comprehensive treatments of any issue. These are not academic papers, but presentations which hopefully will open up important conversations. Whatever is said on this podcast— or for that matter, on any other episode, should never be understood as anyone's final word on anything. If something is missing or incomplete, that's the nature of this particular vehicle. Secondly, I ask my guests less to critique the specific arguments in that particular episode and more to discuss the idea of two men talking about women's roles without a woman present. I asked Rabbi Brander to come on my podcast. I appreciate that he graciously accepted my invitation. The question that I wanted to address in this episode is whether I was wrong in issuing this invitation in the first place, or in the way that I framed the podcast, and so forth. And Rachel and Shoshana's honesty with me, and spoiler alert, none of them thought that I was completely in the right, should be understood as directed at me and the way I conducted my interview, and certainly not towards Rabbi Brander. Whether they agree with his responses is a completely different question, and it wouldn't be fair to address that here when he's not a guest on the podcast as well. And third, as I mentioned during the interview, I have no illusions that my interview 
was so important that we need to discuss it in depth. I do, however, realize that the questions of who should be given a platform and the way that platform is used have larger ramifications that are worth discussing. Ann Gordon, Rachel Stomel, and Shoshana Keats-Jaskal, a.k.a. Chochmat Nashim, thanks very much for joining me today on The Orthodox Conundrum. Thanks for having Pleasure us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. As I mentioned in my introduction, I wanted to discuss my recent interview with Rabbi Kenneth Brander, the president and Rosh Hashiva of Ortorah Stone Institutions. Not because I'm so narcissistic that I think that my conversation is that important in the scope of history, but because a number of people raise some important issues that I think deserve a deeper discussion. Because we've all worked together on the Chochmat Nashim podcast for the past three years, and because Chochmat Nashim, quite independent of anything that I've done, has an amazing reputation, I think that I and listeners would like to know what you think about this. And Rachel, I'll start off with you. Do you think that the concept of this podcast, two men talking about women's leadership roles, is inherently offensive? So I don't know if I would go straight to offensive, but I think that um, it's important to frame this in the larger context of what we as Orthodox women or as women in general are used to seeing. I think that, um, you know, the, a lot of the backlash came from women who, you know, just saw the title and the description and they saw that it's, you know, two men discussing women's roles. And this immediately triggers for us, you know, it's, it's not in a vacuum. It triggers for us a whole, you know, lifetime for many of us of being talked about rather than talked with. Um, of being the objects of discussions rather than the subjects participating in the discussions. And so I think that for a lot of us, it just, it just was like, oh, another one of these, okay. And it's hard for us to take this seriously and say, oh, maybe this one's different. Maybe this one has merit when we're really like inundated with this all the time. That was just, you know, the, the, the first impression of many people who saw it. And then after having listened to it, you know, I, I saw all these criticisms before, before I'd actually listened to the discussion. After having listened to this, the discussion, um, I actually agree with a lot of the people who, were, um, who found it problematic um, <laughs> for the reason that this program actually has a female director. Um, the program is run by a woman, uh, Rabbanit Deborah Evron, who herself actually has uh, ordination. Um, and so her view, I think, would have been very different than Rabbi Render's view, um, not just because she is a woman, um, and because she comes from the context of, you know, all of the history that she has, but also because some of the, the, the things that she is, um, is in opposition to some of the views that Brander was, was talking about on the program. And that would have, I think, been very interesting, you know, to even explore those, those, uh, those places of conflict, um, you know, about, you know, Devorah herself. So, um, so, yeah, I think that because the program had a woman director, um, and we were talking specifically about this program that, yes, while Rabbi Brander is the president of all, you know, the umbrella organization in which, you know, she is a part, it would have made more sense to speak directly with her, especially also since she's a petitioner on the Supreme Court case. So she even has a more clearly defined role in, in this uh, story. Okay, I want to come back to some of those issues. But first, Shoshana, you wanted to say something about this. Yeah, so I think it's what Rachel brought up is very, you know, at first is very true, like, Last summer, we actually did a spoof on two rabbis talking about the greatness of a Jewish princess because it's just so outrageous um, to like be like, let me teach you how to be a great, wonderful Jewish princess. And that to me was inherently like, what the heck? And I think it was very, bla like most people responded that way. I think there is room in orthodoxy 
where you're talking about things that a lot of people chafe at, women's leadership, especially men chafe at it. I think there's room for a male conversation about how do we feel being the men in the orthodoxy who are generally the ones with this ordination? Is there room for this conversation? Is there something for us to talk about? Can we be allies in the women by this conversation? Yes, thank um, you. So, <laughs> right, so I kind of feel like if your discussion was framed as two orthodox male views on this uh, uh, issue, so I think that already would have taken care of a lot of your criticism. Because what Rachel is saying is also correct. Like, Devara is a petitioner. If you're talking about this petition, if you're talking about this and she's available, and da, 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 so she should be included in that conversation. So I think there's, I, I wouldn't tell, say it was offensive. I would say that there's definitely space for it. And Scott, you're a big ally. You know, I, Why, thank I you, can't Shoshana. respect your work. I know, really, I can't respect your work enough. And I, I certainly would want you to have credit. I wouldn't want you to be, you're certainly not considered an ally. Um, so I, I can see both sides. And I think if you, again, if you had just framed it in that way, then I think you would have avoided, but then maybe you wouldn't have had so many listens. So. <laughs> it's all about the ratings. You know, I, I do appreciate what you're saying. I know Anne wants to say something, Anne. Right. So on that day when this was posted and people and the backlash came, I felt not having even heard the recording, I thought that it, you know, what are you going to do? You're male and you've got a host who, you know, heads up, he's the head of the institution. And having anybody else from the institution on, look, it would be great to have Devorah Avram, but I'm not sure that it would have been the same kind of, you know, stamp of authority, whatever, if you didn't have the the head of the place. Maybe that's part of the then problem. I listened, then I listened to the podcast and I no longer thought that. <laughs> Meaning, in principle, I do. In principle, I don't think that two men speaking about uh, you know, women's roles in orthodoxy, as long as it's not about mansplaining and it's not about telling women what those roles can be, the idea that there has to be, uh, to make any kind of shift in society, more people in society than those who are definitely vested need to be talking about it, need to be supportive, need to be involved. And certainly Rabbi Brender is, and certainly you are. But the conversation that the two of you had was borderline offensive. And that surprised me. Okay, tell me why. What was offensive about it? Um, I think that it was condescending. I think that it was, let's give the women a bone. And I don't think that that's the program. I don't think that's the program of, you know, that that is part of Ortora Stone. I don't think that that is how you conduct yourself. But it was... It was in tone and it was in vocabulary. And listen, I come from a very different spot maybe from everybody else because I spent my time in the Beit Midrash um, not getting smicha, right? I have my certificate and and I learned, put in my due years of halacha learning and I didn't petition for smicha, right? Like that's not what we were doing and that's not what the women of the Ortora Stone program are doing either. And yet nowadays, right, in this current era, which is some good number of years after I got my certificate, when there is smicha out there to say, well, like, again, I, I can't fault any person for their personal views. And I know that Rabbi Brander was being personal and not just institutional, but but something in the manner in which I don't, again, I with respect to Rabbi Brander, I understand what he's doing here. I think then suddenly somewhere in that conversation, it became men talking about women's programs as opposed to men talking about an issue of society that applies to everybody and we should all be paying attention to. And that shift was what was bothering me. I want to go back to what Rachel said at the beginning. I appreciate all of you being upfront with me. I'm going to give a very, very specific example. And I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I want you to tell me why it's different. Okay. In fact, I'll give two examples. 
The first example is a theoretical example, because the American Jewish Committee recently hired someone named Holly Huffnagel as its U.S. Director for Combating Antisemitism. She's not, in fact, Jewish. She is a proud Christian. Now, let's say there's an upsurge of antisemitism in the United States, which is actually true. And let's say that the anchor of NBC News, Lester Holt, wants to interview the U.S. Director for Combating Antisemitism of the American Jewish Committee, who is a Christian. Is it fundamentally wrong for that to happen when she is the director of this program? Let's, let's take it even further. Let's pretend that the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, hires a Christian national director. Its executive director is not Jewish. When Lester Holt interviews the Christian national director of the ADL, would you say that, no, you can't do that because this is two non-Jews talking about fixing the anti-Semitic problem or something like that. Rather, what they should do is they should get one of the ADL's lower level employees. I don't mean it has to be someone low, but for someone who's not the executive director because that person's Jewish. Is that at all comparable? And the other example, which I know obviously Rachel and I talked about this before we went on the air. I want to ask about your own recent episode of Chochmat Nashim, where the three of you who do not identify as Jews of color talked about Black Lives Matter. How is this different than those two cases? So, Rachel, why don't I start with you? Okay, so I guess I'll start with, uh, you know, your first question. Um, it seems that the issue would not be that, oh, he just went to the head of organization and it happens to be someone who's not Jewish. Um, you know, the, the real question, I think, behind that is why was this person appointed the head of the organization as the first place, you know, in the first place if they are not Jewish? Um, That's definitely a fair question. But that's the reality. So now, given that reality, because that's the case also, maybe the director of Or Torah Stone, the head of the entire organization, should be a woman. But he's not. So let's take it from there, though. Right. So Or Torah Stone has, what was it, 30-something, you know, different... I think 28 organizations, yeah, yes. organizations, you know, within the Umbrella Institution. So Ari Brander is, you know, the head of all those institutions. But the specific program for women is run by a woman. Like, I guess a more comparable comparison, I guess, would be if... The ADL had a specific program, you know, that was about working in schools, for example, about minorities and an educational program like that. And then we talked to the head of ADL about it instead of the person in charge of the, you know, program who was an educator and who works with the students and who whatever. So like that, that I think is a more comparable comparison because I don't think it's a problem, you know, that I Brander is in charge of this institution. If he's qualified for it, that's great. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about the specific women's program, then... Yes, it would be weird, you know, to go above uh, the person who's running the program's head and to talk about it as this general thing. And she doesn't exist, you know, and she's just not available because she's she's right there. How about the Black Lives Matter issue that I mentioned? The fact that you guys talked about it yourselves and you talked about how it was actually a question that you had, whether it was right to do it. So I want to know how that's different from this, if it is different. So I think that... When we spoke about race and Black Lives Matter, we spoke about it from our perspective. We said very clearly, we are not black. We are not people of color. We are talking about our experiences, what we can do, what we see, how we can make it better. What's our role, right? Um, and I think that might be a very key difference. Like I said to you, the way you framed your conversation is really, really important. Because of course you can have an opinion and of course you can talk about how you think and see and whatever. But when you're talking about it, you know, if I came in and I said, um, well, this is where I think black people should be. I mean, Hashem Yerachem, I don't think anyone should should listen to what I have to say. If that's what I'm coming in. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that's what chafed at Anne and Anne can speak for herself. But it was more when it shifted from 
you know, that theoretical conversation to a very, well, this is where they can be. This is where they can't be. And I'd like to focus on this. It's like, it's like starts to really feel uncomfortable. And I know you don't intend that, like Anne said. So I think it's really important to remember our roles, to remember who we're speaking as and who we're not speaking as, and to recognize maybe where we shouldn't speak. So can I ask if it's similar to this? I'm going to give a different example. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the great basketball Hall of Fame center, recently wrote a wonderful piece about black anti-Semitism and the problem in people not denouncing Louis mm-hmm. Farrakhan. I mean, I'm a Celtics fan, but I have to say I've been a fan of Kareem for a long time. He's become a public intellectual and a fascinating individual. Now, let's say again, using my same example, Lester Holt and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have a conversation about black anti-Semitism. You're saying this is different because Kareem is talking about his own community and how that community must do something to rectify a wrong within that community against somebody else. Yes. Unlike perhaps what I was talking about in my podcast, where we're talking about what women should do or can do. Is that what you're saying? I think that's a very big, big part of, yes, I know. I think it's a very big part of it. I just don't want to speak for Anne because as, as Anne mentioned, she's the only one of us who's being spoken about in this regard. <laughs> Meaning for me, it's very theoretical. I'm never going to have anything near Smicha and really Anne should be Rabbanit, Rabbi, whatever you want to call it. And whatever so she I think she should speak it. for herself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think that the distinction, Scott, that you outlined here of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is exactly, I, I think, Shoshana, I think you've hit the nail on the head, meaning the difference between coming and saying, here is an issue that concerns any good, caring, kind, concerned, thinking person. So good, right? Meaning, yes, we want everybody involved in, in all of these issues that are going to better our society. I think that the question of if Karim Abdul-Jabbar started saying what Jews ought to do to commemorate the Holocaust on Yom HaShoah, right, we would all say like, I'm sorry, what? Who's talking? Why is right. he saying these things? Mm-hmm. Right? It would be so off. Now, it's not quite off to that degree when Rabbi Brander does it for two reasons. One is we are used to rabbis talking about the Jewish community and everybody in it, including women and what they should do and so on. So the fact that it is familiar makes it a little bit less grating, let's say, than the Karim Abdul-Jabbar you know, scenario might be. And also, he is the head of the institution, which means he is involved in the program itself. On the other hand, the program is giving smicha. So when you talk about whether... Technically not. Technically. It's not... They don't call it smicha. They call it morat hora'ah. True. But she was very, very adamant about making clear in the podcast. Yeah, one thing he said was he does not believe that women should be called rabbi. Right. That was actually very clear. Or he wasn't comfortable with it, I should say, to be fair. He didn't say he didn't believe it. He's not comfortable with it, he said. So my familiarity with this program predates Rabbi Brander's sojourn at Ortora Stone. And I was under the impression that prior to his arrival there, and I may be wrong, I may have my facts wrong, certainly the fact that people colloquially will refer to something as being a smicha program does not necessarily make it one, including the learning that I did, which might have colloquially been referred to that way, but we all, you know, very adamantly said it was not. I think that the technicalities, right? How many times do you say it's the same program? It's a very comparable program in terms of what the men are learning and what the women are learning. It's just that the women can't do thus and such in shul. I mean, so perhaps this is also where it gets tricky for me. We all know that there are all kinds of rabbis who don't do all the things that some other rabbis do. And there are all kinds of roles that, you know, (laughs) to say that smicha is defined by what role you have afterwards, I think is a little bit unfortunate. Um, so many people have smicha Nahon. who are not 
using their rabbanis, I mean, they might have learned, they made the best top learner in the yeshiva, and then they're really an accountant on the side, and that's what they are known for, let's say, right? I'm totally making this up. There are plenty but like that. These, the, I, when we get bogged down in... Maybe they make podcasts the for a living. <laughs> for example, I was thinking that, but I didn't Why want not? To um, it's an honorable the, profession. I am proud of what I do. <laughs> and you teach a lot of Torah on your podcast. When we get bogged down in the titles and we be- get bogged down in the particular details of the rules, then it becomes, I feel like it's a klutz discussion, right? It's not a klutz kasha. It's just, it becomes something that is like too, I'm not sure. Somebody else can help me out with what I'm trying to you're say. Look at, you're, you're setting up roadblocks before you're even getting to the to the real meat of the answer. Well, because they can't do this, so we can't do this. It's kind of ridiculous. You're right. I never really thought of it that way, Anne, but you're right. Like here you are talking about like what they cannot do and therefore they can't have the the certification, which as as is very clear here in this country, is a degree and it allows you to have things like childcare and it allows you to have things like stipends. The funny thing is, Shoshana, that's actually not even what I was thinking. I, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you pulled that out. No, what I'm thinking is this is not the discussion that should be that I, again, with all due respect to all the people who are having this discussion, I don't mean here, I mean in the world about women and rabbinus or whatever, as a friend of mine likes to say, that train has left the station. There are people, women, Orthodox women, who call themselves Orthodox, who cover their hair, dress but snoot, keep as much halacha as we know they're keeping, right? Like, there's no reason to think that they are not from, and they call themselves Rabbi, Rabba, Rabbani, Darshani, there's so many different titles, fine. Forget about the titles. What's the role? What's the learning? What are people going to be doing with themselves? And at what point are we going to stop, you know, looking over our shoulders at the conservative movement or whoever and say, we can't do this because, ooh, it's feminism. I don't care about feminism. I really don't. I care about, let's talk about Torah and what we're doing. We'll talk more about what we're discussing now in a moment. I just want to conclude the first part of our discussion, which is about podcasts in general about what happened in general men speaking on behalf of women. I want to thank you for being so upfront with me because I'm not a finished product. I think none of us are. And I'm always trying to learn to do better. And I definitely hear from what you're telling me ideas, which before we went on the air, I would not have understood and I would not have seen as problematic. I am uncomfortable having this conversation about a conversation that you had with Rabbi Brander without Rabbi Brander, right? Meaning we're not arguing the point with him we're talking about it and the same the same issue that you're raising right is it acceptable for you and rabbi brander to be talking about women's da, 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 da. we're talking about rabbi brander without him being present well i don't agree with you Anne, on this because i don't think we're talking about rabbi brander or even me i think we're talking about the concept of two men talking about women and their supposed role or lack of role in jewish leadership so i don't i think rabbi brander or scott Kahn, for that matter is just an example of a larger issue I hear you, except for that, again, we're talking about specific wording that was said, a specific intonation, a specific emphasis, etc. Then we are speaking about specific people. And so for the record, the same way that Shoshana said, let's frame it. I want to, at the very least, acknowledge that perhaps we, all, we, you know, Chochman Ashim, I don't know that we're ever going to do this, but that we theoretically also ought to be having the conversation directly with Rabbi Brander for the sake of... I don't know what, like to give him a chance to respond to, to you know, and, and so on. My last point about this is, and I was actually quite reluctant to even talk about this because it's going to sound very mercenary, which might be somewhat true, but I think it's important to mention. I talked to my wife, Eliza, and she said that I should say it. I want to make this point. The goal of this podcast is to transmit important information about crucial topics in an interesting and hopefully entertaining manner to as many people as possible. Often those goals overlap. They work together. 
there are also times that they don't because the reality is that as a podcast host and as a podcast producer, I want to find guests who will be well-known, people who have a social media following ideally. I want to find guests who will help expand the reach of the podcast. I think any podcaster in the world would want to do that, including Chokhmat Nashim. Given that, there's another factor which I want to mention, which is unfair, but it's part of the way things are, which is, let's say, for example, Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to come on my podcast to discuss the role of women. I can't imagine anyone would say, don't have him on, or anyone would else would not have him on if he were on their podcast. Obviously, that's an extreme example, but you want to have guests on a podcast that people will have heard of. And Rabbi Brander is somebody who has a serious name. He's the head of a well-known institution. He is a successor to Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, Shlita. He's a very important person. And because of that, the fact that I had a certain guest on the podcast, apart from everything else, leaving aside what Shoshana is about to yell at me for, the fact that it might be inherently offensive, (laughs) is the fact that I want to make sure that my podcast has people that people will have heard of And that doesn't mean that there aren't other people I could have had. It doesn't work like that, though. It means sometimes you find the guests you can get and you do the best you can. There are limits. I'm not going to invite certain people on my podcast. Recently, I heard about a podcast that invited on a guest. You should definitely have Yosef Mizrahi on your podcast. I'm not going to have Yosef Mizrahi on. (laughs) That's not who I was talking about, but no, I would not have Yosef Mizrahi on my podcast. There are people I would not have on my podcast because I think no matter how many people they would bring in, I wouldn't do it. But We're trying to also expand the podcast and have as many people as possible listen to it. It's not always so simple to balance all of those realities. I just want to make that point that it's not always as simple as, why didn't you get this person? Sometimes the answer is, I didn't think of it or I couldn't have gotten that person. Okay, Shoshana, rebuttal. There's no question that practicality, yeah, no, practicalities definitely come into it. Um, I would just say then frame it, frame it the right way. And then you won't have such an issue at all. So also, this is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think, especially when we're talking about um, women's voices or other voices, people who are, you know, not as prominent that people, you know, a lot of times you hear this about defenses of mannels, where people say, well, you know, the people who are just the most qualified happen to be men, and they're the ones who usually speak, people usually know them, and so they keep getting invited, and even if there are women who have other qualifications that are just as good, people don't know about them because no one's ever, you know, bothered to look, and then, you know, it just kind of feeds on itself. And the women, it happens with the women also. The same handful of women who are always the representative woman on the topic, who are, she's from, she's learned, and they are, they, they do honor to everybody. But there are more other people also who who are in that camp. And so sometimes it might be worth, you know, going out on a limb and finding someone who maybe is less well-known and has a, you know, less wide network of people who can, you know, help us with our own goals. But knowing that this person is has something of quality to offer to my listeners or to whoever I'm presenting to, whatever. Um, and that, I think, eventually over time will kind of correct itself. Again, I don't want to sound slipstick over here. It's not about my podcast. I really mean it. It's about trying to learn what the proper roles are and where everyone, how do we balance these various issues that come up? So thank you for being honest with me and with our listeners. So let's move on to some of the issues raised in that podcast. I want to ask your opinions about these various issues. Let me throw something out, something that just came up right now. The fact that institutions will name women Morat Hora'ah, as in the case of OTS, or other terms that are similar to that, while avoiding smicha per se. Do you find that to be a problem? Rachel? Yes, I I kind of feel like it's saying, you know, 
that, you know, a man and a woman go through medical school and, you know, the man at the end, you know, becomes a doctor and a woman gets a certificate saying she is a woman qualified in the study of medicine. And um, it, it's grating. It's a bit offensive. And, you know, actually, I wrote a piece uh, a few years ago that was kind of like, you know, a sarcastic, uh, funny kind of piece. But it was actually pretty sad, <laughs> like like a lot of, you know, I guess, Jewish uh comedy is that way and um it was about you know let's let's find like our top 10 or top 20 you know alternative names for you know female rabbinic roles it's meaningless enough that it won't be threatening but meaningful enough that it recognizes you know the proficiency of these women and um and it's it's sad that the only way for women you know we're stuck in this paradox the only way for us to really progress and to move forward and to be respected is to remind everyone how much we don't deserve to progress and to be respected and like to remind oh we're we're just you know here knowing all these things but but don't really you know respect us for it or don't respect us for our you know the same way that you'd respect someone else and it, all of these you know caveats and try to soften ourselves um and to you know shrink ourselves to make us less threatening for you know why it's it's i mean i know why but it's it's just it's very frustrating to me so rachel would you want it to be rabbi or would you want it to be something else that's an interesting question you know it reminds me of a few years ago i heard this line that i really really connected to, and I still haven't finished dissecting it in my head, um, at the Kolech conference. Um, and uh, Rabbi Herzl Hefter mentioned this when he was talking about these issues. Um, you know, and Rabbi Herzl Hefter also, he runs Beit Midrash Harel, which ordains women and men, um, you know, in the same program. And he mentioned, he said something like, it's not that we have to rethink the power hierarchy. It's that we have to rethink the idea that it's a hierarchy of power in the first place. And that really resonated with me because um, it's a very radical statement. It kind of, you know, throws the whole way rabbinic Judaism is organized into this question mark. And so I think, you know, any discussion talking about should women have this, you know, same title as men has to think, you know, what, what does this title mean for us? Where does it put everyone in the structure? And is the structure of having, you know, hierarchies of people, is this something that we are comfortable perpetuating um, and just, you know, fitting women into? Or is this something that we need to rethink entirely? And I'm not sure where I stand on this, uh, this question because it's, it's a huge, it's a huge question. For me, I don't want a woman to be called a rabbi. I don't want a woman to be a traditional male role that we think of as a rabbi. I want a woman to be a woman leader. And if that means rabbanit, that's fine with me. If that means another, I don't like, I know making up strange words is weird and nobody really accepts it. So I know we're kind of stuck between the traditional one and the not traditional one or the new one. But like, I don't want a woman to be called a rabbi. I want a woman to be respected as a, a, a communal leader in her own right without being called rabbi. A, because it's for so many reasons, also being in Israel, it sounds ridiculous to call a woman a male. Like, I wouldn't call a waitress a waiter, even though I know some of those are doing that actor and actors. And yeah, whatever whatever it is, I just, the, the term rabbi, I don't think should be put for a woman. And how about you? What do you think about this? Oh, boy. I mean, on the very small title issue, I think all the women who are learned, whether or not they've passed smicha exams or not, I, and I don't know exactly how you determine who's gotten past that level of learning or not, 
Um, I think everybody should be Rabbanit. I think that it would streamline things. I think that it would establish a term of kavod, of respect across the board. And then and then we can move on to the real questions of what are people in this level of learning and perhaps leadership, what are they actually going to be doing? So this may be an, also a factor of my age and where I'm coming from and the fact that I did this learning without looking for the title and also because it ends up being, the title ends up being a whole political morass and as opposed to it being like, let's deal with leadership, let's deal with what people need, let's deal with mentoring and guiding and halachic, you know, even for that matter, psak, right, because that is certainly part of the whole question here. I think that to the degree that we can remove the politicization of women leadership, the better off our society is. And when it becomes strictly a matter of politics, uh, nothing is strictly a matter of politics, but if we're looking over our shoulder at the conservative movement because they ordained women, so the moment we have you know, a level of recognition of women's le- learning that we're going to call, and, and it's a particular curriculum and we're going to call it not smicha, right, then then we're worrying here about like, is are we are we being too conservative? Are we being not really from? Do we not really care about the halacha? Meaning, when you get into the questions, and I know Scott that you raised this on the on your previous podcast, the questions of Sarara have answers. So, and we talked about it on the Chochmat Nashim podcast as well. Shoshana and I talked it talked about it. I don't know what two years ago. So it's not as if these are not real halachic discussions to be having. What is the capacity for female leadership? But we also have answers for them, and we now have to go do it. So I don't mean that I don't care about the titles at all. I do think that titles matter because perception matters because that's how people get things done. You know, it's not just qualifications. It's also how the world sees you or you won't get anything done. But at the end of the day, go do. I mean, I know I keep saying the same thing, but I, I think that this is this is what it boils down to. If somebody has a title, and certainly there are male rabbis in this capacity, if somebody has a title but doesn't have the qualifications to back it up or doesn't have the follow-through to to be a leader, so they have a title, big deal. It doesn't mean If it doesn't mean anything, it doesn't mean anything. I'd rather have the meaning and not the title if I have to choose. At the end of the day, I still think that the title should be rabbinit, not rabbi, because like Shoshan, I feel like... But that's a male title. It doesn't work in Hebrew. And I think it should be across the board. And some of those Rabbaniot, I would say, have expertise in Tanakh, in Midrash, in Machshava, right? Meaning the we, when we examine what we consider advanced learning, we also can expand that curriculum from the straight up Shabbos, Kashras, Avelos, Nida, whatever. I mean, and I'll go further than you in one respect. I am continually shocked by the degree to which Rabbis expect women who want to have a higher degree, whether it's rabbi or rabbah or rabbanit or marat hara'ah or yuetzat halacha, to reach a level of learning that no man is required to get to in order to get the level of rabbi. I guarantee you, as someone who has smicha, it is not that hard. There are plenty of people out there who don't know anything who are rabbi. Okay, so let's leave aside whether women should be rabbi or not. What bothers me is that men are effectively asked to spell the word cat while women are asked to memorize the sheet of kubetzet, and it's absurd. <laughs> Whatever you're going to do, there is an expectation. I'll, I teach chatan classes, and I see over and over that yotot halacha from nishmat. My daughter went to nishmat for two years. I have tremendous respect for that institution. She was about richader this past year. Yotot halacha from nishmat. What they know in Hilchot Tarat Mishpacha, Hilchot Nida, is so much beyond what the average rabbi knows, it's not even funny. I don't mean that no not rabbi just, knows, it's obviously the, not, but it's ridiculous. 
but not just the average rabbi. When I was learning in Nishmat, now this was a long time ago. It was before the Yoetzet Halakha program was founded, so I don't have the title. And they have they have other curricular elements that I did not take at that time. After that. I was talking to some friends who are serious why you rabbinical students at the time, meaning not your average rabbi, the the people who are going to be much more learned and much more you know sensitive and wise in their rabbinus than your average rabbi, mm-hmm. and what they had to say about what they knew about plenty of men's programs, not just YU. Meaning, again, I'm not panning any program. I'm saying that if you take any area of halacha and you make it your single-minded focus for, you know, two years, if you don't come out of that knowing it better than the person who's not doing the same thing, then then we have an education problem. But but there is no education problem in this particular capacity at Nishmat. Yuatzin Halakha program is fantastic in terms of the level of depth and the level of responsibility. But Scott, what you're saying is something that we see all the time. Something that we wrote about, I think it was even, what, seven, six or seven years ago when Rabbi Gordimer came out against, you know, against women rabbis and then said, and don't think I'm okay with Yuatzin Halakha. And it was like, just toss them under the bus with women rabbis as though it was the same thing. And we responded in depth and we did interviews and we uh, we asked uh, rabbis of different communities how it's been with the Yoetzet Halakha and the, the disrespect and the complete disregard and the ignorance that comes with it is shocking. He had no idea what they learned or what they didn't learn, but he was very ready to dismiss them. And that is a whole nother problem that we can talk about for a whole podcast, about why it is that women are so dismissed and their learning is so disregarded. And then when they do come to learn that they're, as you said, expected to do so much more than men are expected to do. It's, it's a serious problem. Although I would say, it's, it's across I, the board. I would say that there are plenty of women whose learning is regarded. Right. Who, I meaning I can't say from people who don't know them, but in terms of actual human interaction, I know plenty of both Yoatzot Halakha and other rabbinic, uh, what do you call them, people who are congregational interns, educational directors. But those directors, are people who already accept it. Who, what do you mean? You're talking about people who, are, who accept and understand, like us. We obviously don't expect them to be better or more. We understand that, that they're learned and that they're qualified and, and, and whatever. We're talking about people who don't know. I think that some of those people... Um, do the I have that woman who's very knowledgeable and she defies all the other expectations of all the women who right who don't measure up right so the person I know is the exception and I think that many of the people who will pan women's learning women's leadership including the people who are very serious learners right so in fact maybe they do defy the expectations of the average so maybe they do earn that you know yes they are the exception and yet at the end of the day What's that joke about everybody who goes to medical school, the person who graduates last in medical school is still called doctor? So the woman who learns well and isn't the very top of the class is still a learned woman. Let me move on to something else. All of you as Orthodox Jews recognize that Orthodoxy does posit different roles for men and women. And this relates to what you said before, Shoshana, about the traditional female or male role of rabbi versus rabbinate or hora'ah. Do any of you find it a problem that that's part of orthodoxy? I think we need to, you know, distinguish between what's, you know, descriptive and what's prescriptive. Um, how much of it is societal based? How much is just historical based? Because also, this in the general world, women, you know, uh, for 
ever, you know, have been, you know, second class or third class citizens. You know, when you look at halacha, a lot of times, you know, women are grouped in the same class as slaves in terms of their obligations for things. You know, women, children, and slaves, you know, do X and, you know, men do Y. And it's kind of a given because of that's just where women were in society for the longest time up till very recently all over the world in you know, the non-Jews world as well. Um, and so I think a lot of, you know, that, wh- where we come into conflict now is when that has changed in the general world, yet halacha is still the same, and then we feel that clash. Because I think beforehand, very few people felt that clash because it was just accepted, you know? Like, no one's going to be like, how come women can't inherit whatever in the, in the general, or women couldn't have bank accounts, you know? So why would anyone... You know, up until very recently, you know, marital rape was legal in New York until like the mid 90s. Like there's these things that like, you know, these are very recent things. And so, you know, when halacha hasn't caught up with these things, that that's when it bothers us. Um, so I think that right now it's not that women all of a sudden are becoming more you know, are realizing these problems with halacha or or how we perceive halacha or however you want to frame it, um, that, you know, well, how come your grandmothers didn't view it that way? Well, that's because our grandmothers didn't view the rest of the world that way either. It was just so pervasive. Um, so now I think, you know, with these predefined roles that women are like this, men are like this, because the general world is also questioning that. Even the idea of gender bichlal, of gender in general, people are questioning. Um, that is That is why this is such a, you know, a controversial and a hard topic for us to figure out. But Rachel, what you're saying sounds somewhat different from what Shoshana and Anne had said before about using the term rabbi or not, because unless I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, you're effectively saying that the difference in roles is largely historically based, but not inherent. And therefore, there's no such thing as female leadership. There's just leadership. And we have to somehow eventually merge those into the same thing. Whereas Shoshana and Anne, if I understood them, were saying otherwise. They were saying they want to have, or at least I remember Shoshana said this, she wants someone to be not a rabbi because that's a male role. Forget the grammar for a second. Even the role should be a female leadership role, which sounds like something very different. Did I misunderstand you, Shoshana? Point of clarification. What does it mean? I don't want a a woman who has smicha, who is, you know, learned, because that's, at the moment, that's even all we're talking about. As Anne said, we're not even into what they're actually going to do. Um, I don't think of learned woman of any, you know, learning uh, status should be called rabbi. What they're going to do in their role is something completely different. We didn't get there yet. We were differentiating between title and role. So I don't want to say that men and women can't do the same things. I think we have to talk about what we're talking about. And what do you want to add? So I think men and women are different. I think that biology proves that. And not just biology. I don't mean reproductive biology. I mean neurology. Like there's all kinds of, you know, they've they've done all this assessment of um Medical studies traditionally followed white males, and then they took that medicine and applied it to every all the populations, different race and different gender, and and it was bad medicine. A woman's heart attack doesn't look like a man's heart attack, that kind of thing, or it can look different. The fact that men and women are different, I think, is a no-brainer, and the question of whether that should become entrenched in how we function in society is a very different question. Did it affect how things function in society until, you know, until very recently? Sure, absolutely, because women were having babies and women were nursing and women were doing the laundry and they didn't have laundry machines, right? They were scrubbing or going to the creek or whatever they were doing, right? So it was a completely different division of roles because there had to be a division of roles in that way or there wouldn't have been a functioning society. We now live in an era of, you know, what, opulence, 
even without opulence, right? Meaning none of us on this podcast are living in opulence, but we all have... I Speak for yourself. <laughs> we all have washing machines, right? And that means that I can put my load in and go learn or teach or anything, right? Meaning I don't have to be scrubbing every second of every minute of every day. I'm exaggerating. So, so I do think the men and women are different, I mean, inherently, but whether that means that we should consider their roles in society different. Listen, you go to a male doctor, female doctor, it might actually make a difference because that's, again, who are you comfortable to see and so on. Do you go to a male lawyer or a female lawyer, a male accountant, a female accountant? Don't you trust that this female accountant can do the numbers the same with the same skill as a male accountant or she wouldn't have passed the CPA exam or whatever it's going to be, right? So I feel like the question of what has been and what should be are not the same question, not the same discussion, or may not be the same discussion. And I think I agree with Shoshana that we have to talk about what we're talking about. And we're just at the beginning of this, right? Learned women of this degree, I would say, in, a, in the numbers that we have now is a really new thing. I think it's important, and this is beyond the scope, and I understand that, but right now we're just even talking about what women can do, can't do. And, but the importance to Judaism of having women who are halakhically competent, who are in the conversation, who are affecting the community, who are making decisions for the community is so vital and so important that I really just have to say for this conversation that we be far beyond what a woman as a female should or shouldn't be able to do. The conversation about women's ordination and women's communal leadership should include the need of the community and of women and, and of men and of the community at large to have women in decision-making positions. So that moves on to the larger issue that you're all alluding to or saying explicitly, which is if you could offer your view of an ideal Jewish world, including what women's roles would be in orthodoxy, what women's roles would be in terms of leadership, what would that ideal world look like? And why don't we start with you? I'm a problem here because it's a cop out. My concerns for an ideal world start with so many other things, right? Meaning, again, let's get rid of the need for, you know, concerns about climate change. Let's get rid of the coronavirus. Meaning there's so many things that I need for my world to begin to be ideal that have nothing to do with this kind of male-female divide. Do I think that we would do better if everybody treated everybody else with respect? Yes, that's one of those massive across humanity kind of issues. And if and if we fix it across the world in all issues, you know, race and gender and nationalities and, you know, maybe people could stop shooting missiles at each other, you know, all those kinds of things, then we would be in a much, much better shape. And I think that the male-female divide issues would kind of settle down as well. Well, Rachel, what do you say about this? <laughs> wow, I think that like... You know, because the the funny thing about, you know, talking about women's roles or whatever is, or, you know, the ideal positions for women to be in. So women are 50% of the population. So it's, you know, when you talk about like, you know, minority rights or all these things, as if like there's these small, you know, subgroups of people who, you know, maybe have very similar needs or wants or ideas. But we're talking about women who are half the population and are very diverse and want different things. And, um, you know, it's so to try to pigeonhole half of the globe into this, you know, this is what would be the best for them is part of the problem, I think, of maybe let's just look at women as this diverse group of people who all want different things and have different needs that they should be able to choose 
for themselves and not based on these are the roles that you can fit yourself into, you know, that we have defined for you and are great. Um, which is also why women's movements have been so fractious and have been so full of all the time because women are very women are human beings surprisingly enough and we're all very different from each other so any movement of women is always going to have a lot of contention and a lot of you know disagreement about what we should go you know where we should go or what we should be um so yeah there there's no maybe this is also a cop-out answer but there is no ideal I think, you know, for what women should be or what, you know, the role of gender, you know, how it should be defined. Because by definition, taking away the definitions is is the best for us, I think. Okay, so two cop-out answers. Shoshana, how about you? <laughs> two cop-out, very serious answers. I have answers. A, a practical answer that will make you happy. And then I have, actually, I have two practical answers that might make you happy. The first is that the goal of Chochmat Nashim is that in every place that positions exist to make decisions for the community, women should be in that table, in that conversation, part of that. And the reason is because, as Rachel said, there is no specific one answer that I can give you. This is going to be a utopia, right? We have real problems when it comes to Jewish marriage, real problems when it comes to women being stuck in Jewish marriage. We have to figure that out. We have real problems when it comes to the way society is treating women and erasing women. We're, t- we're taking halakha, tossing it out the window, running off a cliff of extremism. It's so much more than what a woman can achieve. We are so imbalanced right now. And I think that entire imbalance comes from women not being in that conversation and everything that we see is a symptom of the same cause, okay? So that's something that, that we see as Chochmat Nashim. So women need to be, very simply, wherever decisions are being made, wherever there are people talking about Jew- Jewish or even non-Jewish conversations, women have to be. There should be no Corona committee without at least, at least, no, four or five women out of ten. This is absolutely absurd. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. So, so we're talking about a phenomenon that's not just Jewish, but really is in the Orthodox world extreme because men are making the decisions for the entire community. And practically speaking, you know, the rabbi of my shul asked me, as we've gotten into some conversations, you know, what I think, and Anne actually helped me put this uh, answer together, what my ideal vision of an Orthodox shul would be as a woman. And I said to him, frankly, I've never even thought about it. Why would I waste my time? And he didn't, I don't think he really understood that, but Anne actually helped me write down some, some practicals. And it does start with women being on the VOD. And it starts with conversations where decisions are made for the community, including women in that conversation. It means women should be able to see, women should be able to hear. If there's anything that's not a halachic barrier, women shouldn't be involved in it. What does that mean for a halachic barrier? The community should decide. And, and it's, it's really not a hard question to answer. The only thing that I'll mention is that when I um, did uh, interview Devorah Evron and a number of other Rabbaniot actually in this and other smicha programs, what was fascinating to me was that they said the halachic questions that we get are such a minority of the questions we get. They get people coming for guidance. They get people who won't go to a male who won't go to a male for very you know, reasons, whether it's personal or whether it's comfort or whether it's a trauma, but they will go to a female. They have questions of things that you wouldn't think of. So it's really important to understand that we're not just talking about halakha question, can a woman starga, whatever. It's a communal issue that needs to be addressed. So the only thing I would say about that is I feel like family dynamics is certainly an issue that rabbis get addressed 
spiritual mentors, whatever title we want to give this, whether male, female, is, uh, is sitting in that seat. I want to be careful to make sure that the women are not like the... Pigeonholed into like women's issues? Kind of not thing. pigeonholed into women's issues, not pigeonholed into the people who wouldn't go to see the more normative rabbi. I feel that there's a risk in our community, in our Orthodox community, of the women being sidelined and yes, being important, wonderful mentors for those who have no one else to go to is still an important role to play, but it is not what we've, what we've been talking about until this point, I believe. That's why I brought it up, because I think that we are talking about the importance of women learning, being part of the conversations, doing the halachic answers, because honestly, we need women discussing halacha, especially those halachot that um, affect women, meaning, and I don't just mean and I don't just mean children. I mean every halacha that affects women, which is pretty much almost everything. Um, women have to be in these conversations. But I think it's important to also point out that there is a communal need for people who also, in addition to the regular halachic issues and to the regular Jewish issues, who don't have a space. I mean, I think that's okay to say. I think it's okay to say. I just think that men should also be trained to be an, an open ear to... Baruch. to no, but I, I think it needs to be said, and also that the people who are on the outskirts of normative Orthodox society find the women leaders, and if they are the only people finding the women leaders, then we have to then then this idea of having women leadership that is to the benefit of the entire community is a tricky situation. Again, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be open to them. I think everybody should be open to them. Right. I think the the question behind that is why you know people who are more marginalized feel that normative halacha is completely alienated to them and, you know, they should not even approach it. You know, that, that's our problem. Why are we alienating these people from our community? Listen, I'm traditionally, I have married five kids, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go to a guy for my, my questions anymore. Now that I can go to women, it's not even a question for me. Okay, we're almost out of time. I want to ask one final question. This is a question which I asked Rabbi Brander also on the previous podcast. This is the question about the perfect being the enemy of the good. That sometimes people will suggest that demanding complete change is ineffectual because people won't accept that. And it's better to ask for incremental change, for things to get somewhat better rather than for them to be perfect, or as we mentioned a moment ago, ideal. If you reach for everything, you might get nothing. Maybe it's better to reach for something small and let our grandchildren reach for the ideal or their grandchildren reach for the ideal, whatever it might be at that time. When it comes to affecting change in the Orthodox world, what do each of you think should be the proper direction? Should we reach for the ideal? Or can we be satisfied with incremental change with the idea that it's not enough, but it's something for now, and we have to accept that at this moment? Yes, Rachel? I think me and Shoshana talk about this a lot. <laughs> we clash over this a lot. I think I've evolved a bit over, you know, over time um, regarding this issue, something that I struggle with a lot. Um, I think that you know, now looking at it with a little bit of hindsight, um, I think it's great that you have people who are extreme radicals who are pushing for like, you know, are really, really pushing the envelope very, very far and um, asking the, the really tough questions that you're like, what? Like, where did that even come from? Like, why are you even talking about this now? And really being out there. Um, 
and having that exist at the same time as people who are making, you know, the changes that, you know, that oh, maybe, you know, this small thing, if I get this, at least that. Um, and then, you know, having the person on the other side who's saying like, well, having the small change will make us complacent and think the small change is enough. And then we're not going to reach for the big change. So I'm going to reject small change so that we can, you know, get farther. I usually tend to lean more towards the radical because I think it's a really important, um, it's, it's a scary position and it's an important position because it pushes everything more in that direction. You know, especially since I'm involved in the world of, you know, Aguna advocacy and, um, there's so much discussion about this. You know, there's a whole coalition, you know, called ICAR, um, which is, you know, a coalition of Aguna organizations and they really disagree about a lot of things and people from the outside, you know, would say, what do you mean? But you're all, you all want the same thing. And, you know, yes and no. And like the way we all want the same thing, but we all get there from different ways and having all of those at the same time, I think is very, very useful because then you can have, you know, kind of the good cop, bad cop dynamic uh, sometimes, which is very useful. You know, Ryan Brander also mentioned in the interview, you know, and he said, you know, that um, one of the organizations under the umbrella of Oratora Stone is Yad Isha. And, you know, he said Yad Isha is the only organization that works with and within the rabbinate to try to make change. There is a value in working within the system. And, you know, and I think that value is compounded by having people outside the system who are fighting for things that are kind of opposite from what they want. And, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous. If you're fighting for opposing things, how is that useful? Doesn't that just cause infighting? And and while it does cause infighting, overall, I think it helps everyone progress more in the uh, in a more useful direction. What you're saying actually dovetails with the Chochmat Nashim podcast. You interviewed both Chuck Davidson, who wants to work outside the system and essentially destroy the system, and Rabbi Seth Farber, who works within the system and wants to try and figure out a way. I guess the two of those can work together in some sort of dynamic tension. What's also interesting is that, you know, Dr. Susan Weiss, who heads Center for Women's Justice, whose whole mission is to work, you know, outside the system, and that is, you know, to be a legal gadfly and to just nudge everyone, and you know, that, that's the... Uh, that's the approach, you know, that has been very effective, you know, for the Center for Women's Justice. She is the same person who she founded Yad Isha. You know, she first founded, you know, Yad Isha to work within the system, saw that it was not going, you know, far enough. It was not, you know, getting anywhere to where she wanted to go. And then decided, you know, it had value. It still exists, but it's time for me to move on to the next thing. And, it, you know, it's, it doesn't shut down and, you know, oh, this is canceled by that. It is complemented by that. That's how we make progress, I think. Scott, your original question, if I recall correctly, was you said how you know, should you aim for the ideal or should you settle for, you know, not the ideal? And for me, that is one activity, right? Meaning, of course, you should aim for the ideal, whatever your ideal might happen to be, and how you get there and what you what you need to do along the way. This is not exactly connected to everything Rachel was saying because obviously that's. That's part of it. That's already like mechanics, right? Do you work within the system? Do you work outside of the system? But in terms of goals and how do you set your goals and how do you measure whether you are in fact achieving those goals? Yes, aim for the, you know, for the sky and do everything you can, whichever different approach you think is the most going to be the most effective for you, your personality, your setting, your, you know, what's available, all those different kinds of real life practical elements and slowly, slowly, you'll get there. I, the idea that you can only reach for an ideal if you're already going to achieve it right away 
is um, not going to happen. That's true. Although there are those people who refuse to accept the compromise because it's not the ideal. Right. And, and I have some of that in my personality, but we're talking about societal change and that's a lot of people. And we know, as we've even said here, right, what's one person's ideal is the other person's not ideal. And to make that kind of, I think that incremental change in society happens whether we're paying attention or not, whether we're striving for it or not. So if we want something to happen, if we want to, you know, rid the world of any of the ills that we've already mentioned, then yeah, like we, we do what we can and slowly, slowly we get there. And maybe there's sometimes a way to do it in one fell swoop, but not usually. As Rachel said, you know, it's it's something that we come up against a lot, whether it's, for example, erasing women. You know, if I can get a magazine, it will never put the women back in for, or at least right now, right? But if I can get them to take out the men, you know, it's, that's uh, settling for something unperfect, but could be a stepping stone towards realizing how stupid it is to erase women. And at the very least, it will put women and men back on, the, at least in this one magazine, back on the same playing field. And when men start fetching about not being able to see their faces, then maybe someone will say something. Um, or when it comes to agunot and prenups, you know, like prenups are, they're not a solution, regardless of what our good friends at other places say, they're really not. Uh, they, you know, they can help. Uh, and if you're lucky, it can, you know, keep someone from refusing divorce, but it's certainly not going to change the system. It's not going to uh, solve every every issue or save every woman. At the same time, I'm not going to tell people don't sign a prenup. I'm currently telling people to sign every prenup because, because I don't know which one the rabbit it's going to accept, which one the, sh the, the, the family courts is going to accept and which one will be able to be implemented because of whatever. And so it's, it's kind of like when you're an activist and you want to make change, you have to be both an idealist and a pragmatist. You have to be pragmatic at the same time and realize, okay, I can't solve everything right now. Right now, what I can do for this person might be some, might be really worthwhile for me to to compromise a little bit on my ideal and say, do this. You know, I'm not going to tell you don't get married until the system is fixed because I don't want you to not get married until the system is fixed. Um, but I will tell you to protect yourself as much as you can. Um, I, I, I don't know if those examples answered your question, but it's the only way I can really answer the question because that's what we do. I want to thank the three of you, Anne Gordon, Rachel Stolmel, Shoshana Kish, Jaskol, Chochamat, Ashim. This has been very enlightening, and it is such a pleasure, after three years of not having a mic <laughs> and listening to you talk and deciding, and saying it's four years, okay, a long time. <laughs> Put it this way, the entire Trump administration of not being able to respond in any meaningful oh. way, okay? It's nice to finally <laughs> be able to talk to you on the air. It was really, really interesting, and I appreciate your honesty and forthrightness. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. Thank you for having so us. So much fun. Thank you for so having fun. us. Thank this you, This was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me. If you have an idea for an issue facing the Orthodox world that belongs on the Orthodox conundrum, please let me know by writing to scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Please go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, where we have numerous podcast series, as well as my blog, The Scott Conversation. Jewish Coffee House also has a Patreon page where you can support these podcasts and receive bonus episodes, merch, and more. The Patreon link is in the description of this podcast, as well as on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>